Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open your Bibles up to the book of Matthew, the second chapter? We'll be studying verses 1 to 12. This is the account of the wise men. And again, Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. Let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will be shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Now, there, there are very limited themes at Christmas time, and the themes are... Uh, small, insignificant, humble, poor. And you might say, well, this is the exception that proves the rule, you know, that here we have rich men. And I would say, that's right, it's the exception that proves the rule. But what you have to understand is the absolute hatred. And you see it still today between the Jews and the Palestinians. No Jews were friends of wise men from the East. And so... Um, if you think of them as goyim, all right, they're dirty, they're scum. You know, the way a, a union man would look at management, all right? The way Southerners look at Northerners, the way um, Owen County people look at Monroe County people, right, Mike? That's right, yeah. The way Copenhagen men look at, well, no, we won't get into that. And so... <clears throat> Really, even the wise men are the same principle that you see with the single man, Simeon, the sing, single woman, Anna. In other words, 
only one one, and also the principle you see with the shepherds. God, in each case, is using the despised, the things that are not, to confound the things that are. The very location in Bethlehem rather than Jerusalem. Um, the fact that the angels just appeared to the shepherds in the night sky. And so here we have Gentiles. Um, and what kind of Gentiles are they? Well, they're really the best approximation, the, most, the closest parallel today would be they would be scholars. They'd be astronomers. They'd not be astrologers. Remember when Nancy Reagan had her husband sign certain legislation on the day that Nancy's astrologers. These guys aren't astrologers. These guys are the ones that discovered uh, the planetary, the constellation movements. They, just, they really came up with the calendar and with time. So they're very, very bright ones. Um, now, it is true that a lot of the things that they believe that they knew about the stars at their time today would be looked at by us as superstitions. But just remember that everything that academics today believe is true will be looked at by scholars 100 years from now as superstitions. There is a certain inevitability to this all. And so these weren't, uh, these were not simply astrologers. These were not soothsayers. These were scholars. And scholars from the east, which is out where Jethro and Job were from. Remember Jethro? Moses' father-in-law? Um, now, how many of them were there? Well, uh, everybody thinks three. And the song says, we three kings of Orion are. But they weren't kings. They were scholars. And there weren't three of them. Eh, there may have been three of them. The only reason people think there were three is it was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's it. Uh, Chrysostom says that there were 14, but what does he know anyhow? He wasn't there at the time. And actually, no Jews bothered going with them from Jerusalem. So, you know, about the only way you'd know, supposedly, would be through Jesus or Joseph or Mary. But Chrysostom didn't know them. He was an early church father. And so... Here we have uh, wise men, scholars from the East. Their specialty was the sky, the, the stars. And they saw, a, um, they saw a star. And a lot of people have spilled a lot of ink over what this star might have been. So let's run through some of the possibilities. It could have been a constellation that they considered to be a sign of Judah. It could have been a comet, Halley's Comet. Comet uh, went through at 11 BC and again in 4 BC, but the calendar doesn't really match up. It might have been another comet we don't know about. Um, it could have been the conjunction of Jupiter and Mars and Saturn, which is calculated to have taken place in 7 BC and then again in 6 BC. It could have been a nova, a real bright flare-up of a star that lasted for a couple weeks or months. In 77, there was an article done in the Quarterly Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society where they identified uh, the star referred to here in Matthew as a nova that was recorded as being observed by Chinese astronomers for about 70 days in 5 or 4 BC, which would match up well with the time. But, you know, even if we come up with a 
scientific explanation. Um, the fact is, the star appeared for Jesus. And the fact is, the star moved and stopped over his house. So how are you going to come up with a scientific explanation? Even if you say that it's a meteor that stopped at his house, you know, did you notice the one in Russia stopping at a house? Thank goodness. <laughs> and listen, the way to approach Scripture is to just say to yourself, did Jesus rise from the dead? Okay? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And as a Christian, your answer is yes, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And once you've cleared that offense against scientism, everything else is small potatoes. You know? God, did you notice in the hymn, maybe it's this one, maybe it's one that comes after, I don't remember. But it, it, he made the world out of ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so if God made the world out of nothing, it, it's not a big deal to him to make it in six 24-hour days. This does not challenge his power. And he's probably not sitting around trying to keep track of whether or not Adam had a belly button. And whether or not the trees had rings. And you think about the stupidities of the things that we spend our lives worrying about. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of the rest of it is small potatoes. Don't get hung up on it. When the Bible says something happened, it happened. Now, you may be stupid, and I may be stupid in our understanding of the actual words. And we might say that the words mean something they don't mean. And, you know, Augustine said that, that often, uh, you know, in our stupidity, we say that the text means something that it doesn't actually mean. That's fine. But when we read here that a star led them to the king of the Jews, here's what happened. You ready? A star led them to the king of the Jews. And you pay me a lot of money to be that bright. And when it says that the star stopped over his house, you know what's coming, right? I have it on good authority that the star stopped over his house. Now, what happened when they showed up in Jerusalem? Well, um, they asked... And here's the answer they got, beginning with verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. So in other words, Herod, who at this time was an old man and who had been reigning as the king for 35 years. So he's had a lot of time to grow comfortable in his seat of authority. And so he hears that there are these scholars from the east and so what does he do? He gathers together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. In other words, he gathers together the religious leaders and the scholars of the Jews. And he asks of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, verse 5, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, 
are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Do you know the word equanimity? The word equanimity means steady as she goes. Not flappable. Not boop, boop. You know how that, that's me? I, I don't have any equanimity in me. Okay, that's one thing Rita used to say to me. Dave Ferris, he's calm, but not you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So equanimity means calm, calm. And if you look at the Pharisees and the scribes here in what we just read, what do you see? Equanimity. They're calm, chilled out. All right, Taylor used to say to Mary Lee, take a chill pill. All right. Now, why do I point to that? Well, the whole rest of Jesus' life and his ministry, the one thing the Pharisees and scribes never had about Jesus was equanimity. They hated him. Right? So here we see, showing up here, appearing here, here we see the enemy of the Gospels. You know how every story has to have a villain, right? Has anybody ever wanted to watch a movie or read a book that doesn't have a villain. No child wants to hear a story. I mean, even in Alexander the Terrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, the day is the villain, right? And it's very interesting to see here that the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees, the chief religious leaders and the scholars, immediately say the truth. Why? Because they're students of Scripture. And they well, Bethlehem, that's where he's going to be, right? Why is it that they're so calm and that it, you know, it's just, well, Bethlehem, why are they so calm? Well, the reason is that as long as God is at a distance from us and we can have religion, as long as religion is mediating the infinite chasm between us and God's holiness, as long as we're just doing religion, it's no threat to us, is it? It's when God shows up and preaches to us that all of a sudden, all of our equanimity vanishes. And that's intentional. It didn't escape God's notice when he sent his son to this earth that when his son began his ministry at the age of 30, it would begin with these words. Jesus began, what? To preach. And that's when the equanimity of the religious leaders was gone because when he began to preach, he said, unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, now, who doesn't have equanimity right now? One that doesn't have equanimity is, is Herod. Why? Well, because Herod's the boss. And immediately, the truth that is spoken is king of the Jews. And so Herod's already out the gate and running. And what is he going to do? He's going to kill this little one. He's going to kill him. He's sneaky, he's devious, 
and he hates him, and he's going to kill him. If you read a little bit later in verse 16 of chapter 2, here's what you read. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew, killed, murdered, all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And that's why we believe <coughs> that the Magi, the the the, the uh, the wise men, that's why we don't believe that they came right away when Jesus was born because he slew everybody two years of age and under. And also the fact that when he came to Je- they came to Jesus, they came to a house. And when he was born, it, he didn't have a house, right? He wasn't living in a house. And so we think that probably uh, the wise men from the East didn't come for a couple of years. But again, we don't know. This is just guesses on our part. And so this is Herod showing his hand. Uh, from the very beginning, he views this, this king of the Jews as a threat to his position. Do you remember what I said? I said that the religious leaders will not hate him and plot to kill him until he begins to preach. Why? Well, it's when he begins to preach that he represents a threat to their leadership of the religious cult. But when he's reported to be king of the Jews, he immediately is a threat, right? He's, he's a threat. Because that's Herod's turf. He's the leader. Calvin says this, he says, all godless men readily subscribe to God in general terms, but when God's truth begins to press them more closely, they spew out the venom of their... You know how you think that I'm just so ill-bred, you know, because I use these words that no civilized person uses today. That's because I live in the past which is actually a good place to live today. And so here's what Calvin says. All godless men readily subscribe to God in general terms. When God's truth begins to press them more closely, they spew out the venom of their spleen. As long as the godless believe that they're losing nothing, they allow God and scripture a measure of respect. But when it comes to to close range, you know, up close and personal, and Christ engages in battle with their self-seeking, greed, luxury, false confidence, hypocrisy, and deceptions. Then they forget all self-control and they rush into a frenzy. You guys, this is you. And this is me. I loved preparing today, I love this little, little, little statement by Matthew Henry. He says, we cannot expect too little from man, nor too much from God. And when he says little, he means too sinful, you know, too wicked. We can't expect too much wickedness from man, nor too great, too much great things from God. And so here we see 
next to each other, the civil magistrate, Herod, and the religious leaders, the ecclesiastical magistrates, uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, uh, the Sadducees, all the religious leaders. And so they tell him, I mean, they tell the Magi, this, the wise men, where he's going to be. And then Herod secretly calls them back and determines from them the exact time the star appeared. And then he sends them off to Bethlehem and says, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. So I turned 60. Right? And by the time you're 60, you, 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 you see certain ruts and patterns. And here's one of the ruts and patterns I've seen in my lifetime. And it is when anybody says anything about Jesus at all, all of you roll over and play dead or, or ask to be scratched. You know, just the simple mention of God, which in America still to some degree is Jesus. All right? And everybody just goes all religious on you. And everybody gets like, you know, pheromones. You know, it's like we all begin to smell good things and to eat good things and to feel good things and to think good things. And there's just good things all over the place. Bon homie all over the place. And I have worked and worked and worked to warn you that if the gospel show us anything. It's the toxicity of religion in the time of Jesus. You cannot trust religion. You cannot trust it. Now, why do I say this in what I just read? Because I've already made the point about the scribes and Pharisees, right? Well, the reason I'm saying it is because right here it says that what? That Herod said, First of all, he went secret, called him back, hidden, and then he said, you go find him, and when you find him, you come back and tell me, because I want to worship him. American civic religion. You know, everybody knows Jesus. You know, there are bad things about where we're at today. Yesterday, Bill Mauser sent us this summary of a Harris pool. And it's unbelievable the statistical significance of the decline in belief in every Orthodox Christian doctrine in the last, what was it, six? Since 2005, so eight years. Unbelievable how many fewer people believe in the existence of God. Fewer people believe in Jesus Christ, that he was the son of God. Every single thing that you go across, there's been just, we're going into a hellhole as a nation and our morals and ethics show it. There's no fear of God anymore. That's the reason. Yesterday, oh. All right. Yesterday, Mary Lee and I took some of the, some of the privileged grandchildren to uh, Willy Wonka and the, is that right? And the chocolate factory. And of course, being down at the uh, Wachimijiki, what's the theater? Is he crying now? I'm sorry. Don't worry, we'll take you sometime. 
All right. <laughs> I missed you. And so we're down at the Chumpley or Cumley or the Chumpley. Oh, yeah, the, the bus chump Kirkley. And what do they do? As soon as you sit down and the play begins, they replace Charlie with a girl. Of course. And the funny thing is that every other girl her age in the play had a dress on, but Charlie had pants. Now listen, there's no such thing as innocence. So at the intermission, Josiah, being an excellent young man, said, why is Charlie a girl? Well, you've got all these unbelievably sophisticated people sitting in front of you, and more unbelievably sophisticated people behind you, and at that theater, when you're in the peanut gallery, which is where we were, that means you're sitting in each other's laps. You know, it's like on a toboggan, you know. <laughs> and so I had to decide, but it, I had to decide if I was going to say something, you know. But it was good because Mary Lee had taken some of the kids downstairs to use the facilities and get some popcorn, so she wasn't there, so I felt like I had some freedom, you know. <laughs> And so just in a normal tone of voice, but when you're on a toboggan, it's pretty loud. You know? I said, well, because usually people in drama are gay. Well, any idiot knows that. I'm sorry, but it's, it's generally true. I mean, stereotypes are stereotypes for a certain reason. And only educated people are so stupid that they don't know these things. And I said, and gay people are wanting to make the point of the excellence of their perversion. And so they have a little girl being a boy with pants on when the other little girls have dresses on. And I said, and we live in a town that is so proud that it celebrates perversion. And so everybody in Bloomington just loves it this way. And then I stopped talking. And what was really funny was that about six minutes later, the man in between my knees, <laughs> it's worse than an airplane, he all of a sudden, he went, not a word, <laughs> not a word. And so the connection, Carol Canfield right now is praying, oh Lord, bring them home. Well, the connection is that we live in a day when the truth is becoming more clear. But what you must not do is you must not let them get you down. You must be salty. And that requires you to say things like that. And you can say to me, well, you shouldn't have said uh, drama, drama people are gay. I say, well, <laughs> uh, 
okay, all right, fine, I'll give you that one. And then, you, then you're going to tell me, well, you shouldn't have said, and I'm going to go, okay, right, I shouldn't have said that. And then you're going to say, well, you should have had a grandchild that wouldn't ask questions like that. I say, well, blame Doug and Heather on that. And pretty soon you have no salt. You don't see what's as plain as the nose on the end of your face. Now, in the Gospels, it is plain who are the enemies of Jesus. Right at the very beginning, the civil magistrate, and then the rest of the Gospels, the ecclesiastical magistrates, which means the pastors, the elders, and the seminary professors. They're the ones that hate Jesus, and they're the ones that plot his murder, and they're the ones that carry it out with the help of the Roman magistrate. You must be on guard against religion. Now, ask yourself this. And so, okay, let me close the loop. And so what we have is we have the celebration of fornication, unbiblical divorce, remarriage, every wickedness is just inundating us in this culture today, right? And the good thing is that with that comes the end of hypocrisy. People just don't simply believe anymore. And they're finally admitting it. And the wonderful thing about this is that then you can begin to speak about God. And everybody isn't going to have grown up in churches hearing that, that Jesus was just love, which is just ludicrous. Jesus was perfectly love, but love bears no resemblance to what people today think they mean by the word love, right? Okay. And so there's freedom for us today to speak and to witness without having all the preconceptions of everybody about what Christianity is and what religion is and, and that, you know, Christianity and all the fluff is getting blown away and that's good. Because when the fluff is blown away, then you can love God and you can shake people with the truth about God's character, that he is just, that he is holy, that he is omniscient, that there's no place you can go, no, you know, Cassius ledges, no trench in the Pacific Ocean where you can hide from him. No gold mine in South Africa where you can get down far enough. And all of a sudden, true Christianity returns. And this is why Kierkegaard says, let persecution come. The minute persecution comes, true Christianity returns. And that's where we are. It's a wonderful time. I've always been envious of Mark Driscoll. But not the reason that you think. <laughs> I'm envious because I would love to preach in the Pacific Northwest. There's no hypocrisy out there. It's the Bible Belt that's awful. You know, New England, there's no hypocrisy in New England. They're all John Updike. And then what's the name of the other guy that wrote the apple or the cider or the John... Irving, John Irving, who said that? Right on. All right, all right, all right, all right. So here we have a very religious town. It's Jerusalem. A very religious people. They're the Jews. 
We have a very religious Herod, right? That's where we took off from. He says, so I can what? I can worship him. But Grandma, what big, what? Nose or? What big eyes, what big ears, and what big nose, yeah. Teeth, yes, what big teeth you have. All right. So after he let them know that he wanted to come and worship this little baby Jesus, right, they left. And it says, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child is. And that's the last refuge of those of you that are scientists. No matter what you come up with before, stars don't go and then stop. But it stopped over the place where the, the, the child was. And then we read this. In verse 10, okay, we read, when they saw the star, what? They rejoiced exceedingly. Um, there's a statement by someone, I don't remember who said it, but he said, no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. And isn't that true that when we rejoice exceedingly, it's clear what our hearts love. Isn't that right? And so what did their hearts love? Their hearts loved the king of the Jews, the Christ child. And how do you get there from being wise men of the East, scholars from the East? It's hard, it's hard to understand it, but God does not reveal it to us. But he has many other sheep not of this fold. That's how I think of it. And so here they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. So how do you rejoice exceedingly with great joy? It's more than redundant, isn't it? Rejoice, rejoice exceedingly, rejoice exceedingly with great joy. What does rejoice mean but with exceedingly with great joy? So whatever it looked like to be bonkers with joy, that's what they were. And then verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Now, what point do you think a preacher of the word would make there? What is with you people that you won't raise your hands? I mean, please. No man's a hypocrite in his pleasures. And those of you that won't raise your hands, your pleasure is yourself and your great august dignity. <laughs> you know? Come on, for heaven's sakes. Raise your stupid hands. Because if you don't, then we're going to make a rule that you have to fall down on your face. I mean, can we please, white people, have bodies? Can we jump? I mean, this is so pathetic. Look at the scholars from the East. What did they do? It says, they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Now, you can say, well, yeah, but they weren't of what I call Germanic extraction. I know, David, it's what we call German ascent. Or no, no. But Germans always ascend. Oh no, is it descent? But do Germans ever think that they descend in anything? I don't think so. No. Okay, so you're German. I'm 
Scotch-Irish and German, but I don't claim that. What are you? And so that's how we get around it. We say, well, we live in a culture and in a time, ethnicity that doesn't fall down and worship. Come on, you guys. Do you really think that when the Bible describes the worship in heaven, that our ethnicity is going to trump the Bible description? Do you think that that description of the wise men is not given to exhort you to be humble when you worship God? Do you know the reason why every time I write about our music on the blog, I never get any purchase? The reason is that if there is a group of people that are most proud in their religious expression, it is Reformed Protestants. Most proud. And Reformed Protestants who are proud will not submit to having leadership in worship. And so if you look at their preaching, their preaching lacks leadership just as much as their music. You know, partake of it as you choose, <laughs> you know. And of course, that means that the preacher won't apply scripture to them because that sort of backs you into a corner and tells you to say uncle, right? And so reformed worship has no humility in it. It's a head trip. And that's the reason that Reformed people can't stand the leadership of our musicians. Because our musicians never give us a place to run or a place to hide. Now, there are some musicians who are up on the platform who are themselves there so that they can hide. I won't name them. But we all know it's, it's not David. <laughs> Do you want to say anything? Okay. Yeah, I've, I've about summed it up. Listen, people, when the Bible says that they fell down, when it says rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, the Bible is teaching us that all those who belong to God have their greatest pleasure in Jesus Christ. It is impossible to belong to Jesus Christ. It is impossible to believe in Jesus Christ. It is impossible to be a true Christian without having a heart that's on fire for Jesus Christ. And it is impossible to have a heart on fire that the body does not reflect it. And so if you want to say to me that you're not going to submit to my guilt-tripping you about raising your hands, I say, fine, but show me something! Something! Your great dignity is not going to be dignified in heaven. If you know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, how can you not love him? And you say, but I do. And I say, then show me. You know the expression, show me the money. Right? Show me the heart. You know, there was once a guy who was a real intellectual, not like you posers. And his name was Pascal. And do you know what they found when he died? Anybody know this? 
Go on, tell them, Chris. Uh, nobody can hear you. you. You have to speak as if you have some passion for this. Come on, he's a mathematician. Stand up first. Uh, stand up. No, but yeah, loudly. That's right. It was in the seam. It was in the lining. Did you notice that he said it was very childlike? And the word for it would be ecstatic. It was as if Pascal was standing outside of him. It was something to the effect of fire, fire, and then the glory of God and I am nothing, fire, fire. And that's what was hidden in the lining of his coat. Listen. There's absolutely nothing that Bloomington can do, nothing, to silence those whose hearts are on fire for Jesus Christ. And there's absolutely no way you can't be on fire for Jesus when you see your sin properly and you see the holiness of God properly. Okay? We don't need to be complaining about oppression. We just need to be salty, and we need to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. How many? I have two. Two left. So should I give them a Christmas present? David's telling me I have two minutes left. Okay, let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you that you have lifted me up out of the pit of my sin and that each day you do this again and again and again through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that we will be known as a church of hearts on fire for Jesus Christ like the wise men, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.